The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. One in your scriptures. Be very important as we go through James. We have been encouraging this. It's, it's odd that we have to encourage people to bring their Bible to church, but nevertheless, that's, I guess, the time in which we live, that you have your Bible and have it open, following along. And I know a number of you pick up the sermon uh, in printed form. I would really encourage you not to read it as I preach it. Uh, that's not, I don't think, the intent we have. Um, but anyway, that, that's a personal decision. I'm not going to. Put that down. James chapter number one, first 12 verses, and I, um, I'm going to be returning to the translation, the New American Standard Version. I like to preach out of the King James when I'm in Old Testament texts in the Gospels, and I like to use the more literal translation like the New American Standard when I preach the epistles. If you uh, don't have one and would like a, uh, there, there are probably some still in the pews around the, the room. There you go. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, reading James is a bit like the crossword puzzle clue from this past Tuesday's New York Times crossword. We'll put the clue up there. Punctuation missing from Let's Eat Grandma. Admittedly, I'm not good with grammar, but it didn't take me too long to figure it out. In case you're wondering, the comma goes after the word eat. Let's eat, Grandma. 
Like I said, James can be a bit like that. We might like more structure or organization of James, but if Bible commentator J.A. Motier is right in his assessment that James is more of a preacher than writer, and if Pastor Mike was right in his observations in last week's sermon that James reads a lot like reading Proverbs, then we need to be careful not to force too much organization or structure into James or we will miss the force of his letter. And believe me, his letter is forceful. It confronts. And in particular, it confronts two issues that are as real for us today as when James wrote about them. The first experience is that of being dispersed. The people James is writing to are being dispersed because of persecution. James is an early letter written to the church, specifically to the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians. Luke describes the dispersion in Acts like this. Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. Now you might remember in Luke that right after the martyrdom of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, Saul of Tarsus, with the approval of religious leaders, unleashed a brutal persecution against the Jewish Christians in the regions of Jerusalem. Acts 9 describes Paul's actions as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So these are the people that James is writing to. And the dispersion needs to be understood as forced due to the mistreatment of Christians by powerful people who, as we would read in James 2, are dragging Christians into court and are oppressing them. So those are the circumstances which then it might come as a bit of a surprise when you read James that you understand that he's actually confronting the attitudes and actions of the Christians who are being persecuted because they are lacking a family quality, a family of God and Christ quality that should arise within the church. You might think that James would, you know, ride a, a, against the oppression of the wicked people out there. That's not what he does, which is a clue to sanctification. Don't think that as we feel more and more the pressure of a godless society that that's automatically going to make us more holy. It's not. An early letter to the first Christians being persecuted are also being confronted over the way that they have lost the quality of their faith, especially as it relates within the family, and that's the second major issue that James addresses. This theme of how the dispersed family of Jesus should live as they face great trial of their faith runs throughout this letter. And we know this to be true because of the number of times James uses the word brother or sister. 
In her excellent commentary, theologian Ada Spencer observes this. James uses the word brethren, which is kind of his comprehensive word to talk about God's family, the church. He uses it 15 times in just five chapters. The only book that uses the word brethren more is 1 Corinthians, which has 16 chapters in the book. So James has this concentration of the family of God, the brethren, the brothers and sisters. And this issue of how the dispersed family of God is to live in real life, as I said, is as important for us as the people that James is writing to. Here's why. Think about this. Dispersion is not just a physical issue. These Christians were being dispersed, meaning that they were losing their homes, they were losing their livelihood, they were being shoved away by the persecution. But, and this is very important to get if you're going to get the application in the present day, dispersion can be experienced without having to physically move. Dispersion can be experienced without having to physically move. The existential crisis many Christians are experiencing as we see the things that we once held dear all around us changing creates a dispersion emotionally within us. And out of those emotions, we tend then to respond to each other and respond to the world out there. This crisis is real. As a friend of mine wrote this last week, what am I to say to my five-year-old daughter when we pull into the McDonald's drive-thru and she sees a man wearing lipstick and makeup, dressed as a woman, and she says to me, it's not Halloween. What am I to say to my five-year-old daughter? That is dispersion for Christians in the present day when things that we thought were going to kind of stay normal in culture and society are all now shifting. If Sleeping Beauty gets to be attacked by the cancel culture, you think you and I are safe? Right? So how we respond to the threat of being canceled reveals a great deal about what we believe about God's purposes for us as his family, brothers and sisters. The family that was born as a result of what James calls in verse 18 the exercise of God's will as he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruit among his creatures. So the family of God in Christ does not have the option to respond just any old way they want to respond to the godlessness of society. We are to live, think, and act as those who are the first fruits of his creation. Let your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, or you won't see the kingdom of heaven. And if we are to be that kind of first fruit among his creatures, then we must learn to rekindle a deep love for one another, for the church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll put the quote up on the screen so you kind of get it as I read it. 
again, from the commentary I'm recommending that you purchase, J.A. Motier writes this, the first priority for the church in the world under the lordship of Christ is that Christians must look after themselves. For the life which issues in the caring ministries in chapter 1, verse 27, is the life which itself moving forward to maturity. And this is the point that James makes, that our faith is to be growing into maturity. What does 127 say? What is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father? That we visit orphans and widows in their distress, and we keep oneself unstained by the world. Imagine the distress of persecution, of being dispersed. And James says, hey, listen, church, you can't ignore the widows and the orphans just because you're under distress economically or in culture or whatever it might be. And you can't join the world in the way that the world acts just because the world is unleashing its anger against you. You can't unleash your anger against it. You've got to keep yourself unstained from the world. struggle to keep a fervent family love without losing a fervent love for people who are without hope in God and the world is a struggle that I believe is well worth the effort. And so when we say first concern, loving one another, rebuilding the Durkee Town Church as a family, not just a group of people who occasionally show up on a Sunday morning and tend to bump into each other, kind of hope you remember each other's names, but as an actual family, to keep that family love without losing love for people without God and without hope. That's a struggle well worth the effort. What did Jesus say to his disciples by this? All men will know that ye are my disciples if ye have what for one another? What? Love for one another. How you and I, as the family of God, handle the many colored and complex trials that come with being dispersed will have an impact on how people outside of the Christian faith understand the Christian faith. When we love one another and live as a community one with another. Well, you say, well, why, why is that? And of course, James tells us. It's because when we come together as a family and we learn to count the hardships as joy, then as he writes in the first few verses, faith then learns to endure. And it's not just an individual faith, it is our collective faith that learns to endure. For he says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He wants the church to have a faith that endures to what James then calls a perfect result. And that word perfect doesn't mean perfect in the way we'd like it to mean without any error or misstep ever. It means having full effect. Imagine, if you could, if I could, the impact of the Durkeytown Baptist Church congregation on one another in here if your faith grew to full effect, and the impact we then would have if our faith grew to full effect on the world out there. 
instead of allowing the world to squeeze us into its mold, we think biblically. We respond biblically to the various trials that we encounter, that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and that endurance has a perfect result, that we become perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Now, you know, if I could ask James a question at this point, just a few verses into his letter, here's what I would ask him. I would want James to tell me, of all the people that you knew in the church, whose faith was the most mature? Who had a perfect faith? And before you answer, James, I would want to know what kind of trials did that person face and did their life characterize joy? So who had the most perfect faith? What kind of trials did they face and was joy the attending result. And you know, I'm pretty confident I know what James would say. You know, even though James was a leader in the church, he rubbed shoulders with the apostles, he was a central figure and authority in the church in Jerusalem, James would have witnessed the steadfastness of the faith of the leading women in the church in Jerusalem. James would have watched many saints suffer greatly there would be one person that would stand out above all the others, and that would, of course, be Jesus. And I think if we could ask James that question, he would immediately say, Jesus. He said, well, why? Well, don't forget that this James, who is writing this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus. In other words, after the miraculous conception through the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary, that Joseph and Mary come together as husband and wife, and they have children. And those siblings would have observed Jesus in childhood, teen years and early adulthood, all the way to age 33. They would have seen, James and the others would have seen Jesus in all kinds of situations and circumstances. They would have seen Jesus threatened. They would have seen Jesus adored. They would have seen Jesus gossiped about. They would have seen Jesus talked about truthfully. And James would have been able to say that through it all, Jesus had an endurance of faith with true joy. And it is that endurance of faith that rises above the horror of the cross and brings the aroma of joy into that godless scene Surrounded by the stench of human sin, bearing our own sin, James would say it would be Jesus hanging on the cross. And perhaps James has Jesus in mind when he writes in verse 9 that the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position. For if you would have looked at Jesus that day hanging on the cross in his humble circumstances, you would not have thought it to be a high position. And this is one of the problems we encounter as Christians. It is within the various trials that we face of being dispersed and feeling the effects of an ever-changing culture and society pressing in on us. It is within our humiliation, our humble circumstances, that we find our high position with Jesus. 
and the perfection of his faith that endured with joy. So as we think about the need in our church to return to a family orientation, one of the things that we can learn together then is how do we count it, truly count it as joy during these humble times of circumstances that come with dispersion? How do we help one another escape anger? How do we help one another escape defeatism? How do we help one another live as Christ would live in the dispersion? How do we then embrace these moments when the virtue signaling culture wants to humiliate us? Or the consumer driven culture wants to kind of wheel in the young people and with all of these promises of external appearances that are just fading, how will we as a church family face these kinds of trials and temptations and help one another to live well? Well, James uses one word, and that word is wisdom. Wisdom. The leap that James takes from verse number four into verse number five is typical of a letter like how you might read the book of Proverbs. James seems to have switched gears. He was talking about faith. Now he's talking about wisdom. Doesn't seem to be any connecting point. But what we're talking about when we talk about an enduring faith and what we're talking about when we talk about wisdom are not disconnected, but instead James is presenting a fundamental truth that we need to live out if we are going to overcome with joy those who want to humiliate us or those who want to feed us empty promises that possessions and a life of ease might appear to bring. Again, the commentator Motir writes this, if we are to line ourselves up with Scripture, a whole revolution in thinking is called for. Let's just stop there for a moment. Read it again. If we are to line ourselves up with Scripture, a whole revolution in thinking is called for. And this revolution touches not only our appraisal of life's experiences, but our spiritual expectations also. See, most of us grew up in an America where we expected things to kind of stay the same. Yes, there were always sin. There was always problems. It was never great. But now it just seems like everything's different. How people view the church. Rhonda and I went to the car show last night. We should have had church there. There was a lot of Turkey Town people there. Uh, see, Matt Vessel didn't win an award, but his brother Brandon did. I'm glad that we can help with a little family-sibling rivalry there. Um, Dave Earsing was out there directing traffic, as only Dave could do. And Ron and I, after we left, he said, that's, that's quite a culture there, that, that car culture. That's quite a culture. And I said, I wonder that's how, if that's how people view the church. Well, that's their culture. I'm not really interested in being part of it. I mean, that's a real change in American thinking, isn't it? And we then, 
need to step away from how we once thought about how life would be in America, and we need to have a revolution in our thinking to line ourselves up with Scripture. So that when we look at the experiences that we're facing in life, and we attach our expectations to them, they are lining up actually with the wisdom of God's Word. The way that God would want us to think. And this is a real challenge, right? And so uh, I want to re-ask the question. And instead of the word faith, I want to put the word wisdom in. Who was the wisest man that James ever interacted with? And once again, Jesus is the person that James would point us to. Outward circumstances did not appear to be favorable for Jesus, but because he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man... He could see life as it actually was. God's favor was with him even though his outward circumstances appeared to be saying something else. And it was that wisdom accumulated in his life that then opens the door for obedience. And wisdom can do the same for us. The call for biblical wisdom in our lives shoves open the door. We begin to see life as it is in God's kingdom We shift our expectations away from what we thought it was going to be into what the way God has for it today. And then our family dynamic begins to re-engage and rekindle in love and in good works one with another. We don't omit the assembling of ourselves together. We're not sporadic in our attendance. We're not missing out on the opportunities of fellowship and ways to show love for one another. We're engaged in the uh, Sunday school or in the Uh, programs of the church that really help us learn to line up with God's word. This is what James wants us to learn. Wisdom calls out to us, it pleads with us to have a response of faith in Jesus. Jesus who broke the power of sin through his death promises a life of victory over trials, even the trials that lash out against righteous people. The ones that James is writing to and people in our own society today. But it really begins with asking the question, are you a Christian? And I don't don't make any assumptions. Are you actually a Christian? Or are you just a reflection of a Christian society? Those, Those are not the same thing. Have your sins been forgiven, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you been baptized into his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection? Is the Holy Spirit actually ever engaging in your life? Are you a Christian? And then if you are a Christian, will you live Christianly? And if you're not a Christian... Will you turn from the way you're living, as moral and good as that might appear to be, repent of your sins, and place your faith in Jesus Christ? You know, you've got to remember that at one time, James was not a follower of Jesus. He was part of a mob standing outside of a house that wanted to go in and drag Jesus out because they thought he was a lunatic or a demon. 
But at some point, after the resurrection, it would seem that Jesus and James had a meeting. And that James began to follow his elder brother, Jesus. If you are a Christian, your response to the dispersion that we feel and sense today must be a Christian response. But if your response is unrighteous anger or throwing up your hands in defeat, or perhaps for some, the temptation to affirm the wickedness so that you don't have to put up with the problems that come by speaking out, you need to stop listening to whoever you're listening to and line yourself up with the scripture. Perhaps in our church, a whole revolution in thinking is called for so that we view one another biblically and we view the world in which we live as the body of Christ. If you lack the wisdom to see your circumstances as they are, whatever those circumstances may be, if you struggle to trust and obey God, you need to ask God for the wisdom so that you would see things as he sees them. And when you ask for this faith, we're told in verse number 5 that God responds generously, generously, and without reproach. Again, the commentator Ada Spencer makes this helpful observation. Reproach is often used in, as an aspect of persecution. So I think James is using uh, this word with a, as a double meaning. God is not going to treat you when you ask for wisdom the way your persecutors are treating you. God will not reproach you when you ask for wisdom. God instead will give it liberally, generously, without reproach, he will give you wisdom as you ask for it. So, you know, as we place ourselves in this letter that James has written, it is obviously, right, it's obvious that we struggle with the idea of God just giving us something generously. I mean, after all, America is an earning culture. It's an earning culture. It's a pull-ourselves-up-by-our-bootstraps culture. That's the way most in this room were taught to think. Some Christians actually would rather die than ask for help from someone else, even within their own church. And that type of thinking that is so deeply embedded within the church is actually opposite to the very nature of faith rooted in a family orientation as James would present it. The invasion of American individualism is symptomatic of the kind of double-mindedness that James writes about. And double-mindedness will continue to make a church like ours unstable. It's interesting, this word double-minded, right? You have to ask in faith without doubting. The one who doubts like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8, being a double-minded man. That word actually means that you're trying to look in opposite directions at the same time. And that's how a lot of Christians in the church live. 
and the idea of individualism or the idea of the marketing of Christianity. Uh, that's not my cup of tea. I won't be part of that. Cuts against the grain of the family orientation and the wisdom that is needed to live in a time of great trial and hardship. Brothers and sisters, wisdom according to Proverbs is the principal thing. And according to James, wisdom flows from the hand of a generous God. Wisdom is needed so that we will have a clearer understanding of our present circumstances and how to proceed joyful in the obedience of those circumstances, regardless of how they appear, negative or positive. I mean, do not, don't we need to be reminded of this? Of course we do. This is why James confronts the church and doesn't coddle it. I mean, you might think, right, these people are losing everything. They're being dispersed. James would write them a nice, soft letter, pat them on the back, keep doing your best. God will take care of you. No, James would say, listen, you're losing your family orientation just because you're getting these trials, these persecutions. Straighten up. Because God wants you to see things as they are. And not as you wish they were, or not as the world might tell you they are. In this confrontation, however, James doesn't leave us with the sense of, let's eat grandma. But he places the comma correctly, let's eat grandma. In other words, James emphasizes hope as a way of bringing correction to the church. James may not on the surface appear to be a book that presents a hopeful future, but as you read the letter, make sure you read into chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Therefore be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Be patient. Strengthen your hearts. The coming of the Lord is near. So let me conclude. How we as a church respond when the sun rises and the scorching winds blow and the things begin to wither and the beauty all around us fades, it will say a great deal about our growth as a family in wisdom and in faith in Jesus. Will we listen to the correction James teaches? Will we recover a family orientation as a church so that we truly are living and helping each other to live in the wisdom of God? If we will do those things, then as verse 12 says, we will be blessed people who persevere under trial. And at the end of it all, we will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks so much for your word to us today. Encourage us in it and help us to live in obedience to it. There's a lot here, Lord. Give us wisdom to really think it through. I do believe repentance is needed for how some have thought about this body, somehow some have treated this body. Some have stepped back from the body, denying their own gifts, not putting their own gifts to use in the body. 
the gifts you've blessed them with through the Holy Spirit. The a la carte life we tend to enjoy out there cannot be the same in here. Oh, how desperately we need a rekindling of a family orientation so that we live with wisdom and faith, encouraging one another until that great day that you return. Now help us, Lord, I pray, to listen and create that revolution in our thinking. We'll have a moment of quietness before Mike comes and leads us at the table. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.